previously on Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. With the decolonization as the goal, Pan-Africanism is just a logical progression to that once you embrace any kind of radical politic and then also understanding that like this kind of chauvinistic way of talking about building a Marxist-Leninist type revolution. The state's going to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying because we're already ready. We've already been through too much. These people, I've never seen a jail cell in their lives. Do you know what I'm saying? They've never heard all the screaming, the banging, women going crazy, the the literal maddening of of hearing human beings encaged in jail cells screaming wildly. They've never even seen humanity like that. And honestly, it's a lot worse. It's a lot worse. That's just one fucking small example. How did you become a Pan African? Why? I mean, that's just like mostly through the experience of being a radical, you know, African growing up in the imperial core. It don't take much to get a lot done. All you have to do is get people who are printed for an African village. When you actually share the video of you read the notes oh, yeah. on Twitter, Blood in My Eye by George Jackson. Yeah. Why did you choose to read that piece? There's a lot of great revolutionaries in history. I don't think in all of history there's a single revolutionary just more relatable than George Jackson. This idea of a person who isn't academic bourgeois at all, who's self-educated, who's having to figure out the way this all works on his own, then getting locked up by an unjust, by an unjust system, getting killed, the epitome of like anybody can make these conclusions you know and he made yeah i don't i don't think he missed on a on a goddamn thing just reading through blood <laughs> in my eye you know he quite literally was making conclusions you know from a background even less privileged than the one i come from, still making advanced conclusions so like when people talk about the american proletariat having like no revolutionary potential I'm like, you know, George Jackson literally exists. You know, like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is not a person. Anybody would give any kind of credit for uh, having revolutionary potential. Yet, that motherfucker was making more revolutionary conclusions than basically everybody else at the time. You know, he was getting, like, the Panthers were consulting with him to get his opinions on shit. You know, like, we got to get people to understand that, like, it doesn't take degrees and like you know media jobs and being any kind of like having any kind of adjacency to like liberal bourgeois electoralism to like start making radical conclusions you can just be a lumping pro who happens to give a fuck about other people who just reads the right book and gets the right nugget put in your ear and like that's what's so important about George Jackson so that's what I shared that for because if people can understand that they're definitely no different than George Jackson you know who knows thanks again for tuning in to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio okay so this episode was recorded a while ago but of course you know, the subjects of discussion are still present and, you know, if anything, they're even more relevant today. You'll hear us continue on our conversation with Comrade Jabria on George Jackson and their book, Blood in My Eye, as part two on our podcast to expand on and illuminate George's revolutionary potential despite being a prisoner. 
we discussed the forces that killed him in the end, as well as the contemporary culture today of Marxism in relation to the works of black Marxist, anti-colonial and pan-African theory that they produce, that demands, ultimately, violent revolution, but out of nothing but the necessary fight for survival and peace. We again thank Comrade Jabir for coming on the pod as a friend of the show. I've genuinely learned, like, so much. It's honestly changed my life because I know just how much I have to follow up on and learn about anti- or decolonialism. We hope the incredibly astute descriptions of the concepts that you hear will encourage your willingness to go out and learn. But honestly, frankly, like, we'll help you because, like, we can do it together through this pod, no doubt, in the future with some work. This episode has questions from Patreon supporters at the time, so we were able to ask our esteemed guest their questions, and he had some great ones, so shout out to Ruin for their point and discussion raised on the nature of communist nationalism, and also Gigi from our Cinephobia and Marxism 1 episode that you've obviously got to check out if you haven't already. So shout out to Gigi for their ongoing struggle in the class war and their personal lives, as well as their flawless question that they presented to us that enabled us to really tap into Jabria's seemingly unlimited knowledge on these subjects. This was one of our best episodes. This episode of Evolutionary Lump and Radio was presented by your co-host Ryan, aka the Zen Marxist, and myself, Shibby. Throughout the episode, we have audio clips from a Rev Left episode where Brett actually reads parts of Blood in My Eye out to really help paint the picture who George Jackson was. So that goes on throughout the episode. We've done this because obviously Brett's a great reader and an even better storyteller. It's talking about the exact same thing we're talking about. So we also linked the episode we got those audio clips from of Brett reading, except I obviously made them better. Just wait till you hear them. So you can find that episode of Rev Left in full in the show notes. And from there, you can probably find over like 200 other episodes that they've done. So you're obviously surely going to find something that will interest you. And if you do like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You know, you get bonus episodes. You also get to ask our upcoming guests a question. So make sure you're also subscribed on whatever podcast player you are listening to us through. Hit that subscribe button now and also share our episodes with your friends or on Twitter. You can find us at lumpen underscore radio. So this episode features themes of revolutionary violence that some people may be afraid of. But don't worry, that's just the ghost of George Jackson. The Preface to Blood in My Eye, written by Gregory Armstrong, October 1971. In his introduction to George Jackson's Soledad brother, Jean Genet wrote, quote, Nothing has been willed, written, or composed for the sake of a book. It is both a weapon of liberation and a poem of love. This book, too, is a weapon, but one entirely willed and purposeful. 
It was completed barely a week before the author's murder in San Quentin on August 21st, 1971. It was sent out of the Adjustment Center with specific instructions for its publication, almost as if the author knew that he would never live to see its appearance in print. Describing it a few days before the end, George said, quote, I'm not a writer, but all of it's me, the way I want it, the way I see it. What he saw and what he wanted, the central passion of his life, was war, the revolutionary war of the people against their oppressors, a war which grew out of perfect love and perfect hate. I've been in rebellion all my life, he wrote in one of his letters. For a young black growing up in the ghetto, the first rebellion is always crime. George's first experience with American law came at 14, when he was arrested in Chicago for stealing a purse. From then on, his life was a constant succession of arrests, juvenile homes, paroles, and more arrests. At age 18, he was convicted of stealing $70 from a gas station. His lawyer promised him that he would make a deal with the DA if George confessed to second-degree robbery. He told George it was his only chance because he had a record. Don't put the court to the expense of a trial, and they will give you county time. Instead, he was given an indeterminate sentence, one year to life. The first time I was put in prison, it was just like dying. Just to exist at all calls for some very heavy psychic adjustment. Being captured was the first of my fears. It may have been an acquired characteristic built up over centuries of black bondage. The turning point in his life came when, quote, I met Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, Engels, and Mao, and they redeemed me. For the first four years, I studied nothing but economics and military ideas. I met the black gorillas George, Big Jake Lewis, and James Carr, W.C. Nolan, Bill Christmas, Tony Gibson, and many others. We attempted to transform the black criminal mentality into a black revolutionary mentality. He wasn't alone in his discovery. At the same time, other prisoners were just beginning to discover Marx, Fanon, and Mao, who provided them with a new way of regarding themselves and their struggle, a new standard of moral judgment. I have been in rebellion all my life, I just didn't know it. The social insights of Marx and others made it possible for them to have a sense of themselves as members of the human community, members of a revolutionary brotherhood. In prison, commitment to revolution has a special meaning and a special price. To be identified as a revolutionary by the prison authorities means an almost permanent denial of parole, separation from the other prisoners, solitary confinement, usually in maximum security wings of the prison, transfers from one prison to another, beatings, bad food. It brings down on you the entire punitive and repressive force of a completely totalitarian system. Inside prison, George practiced a very special kind of devotion and love. When convicts talk about him, they often use the term for real. Many inmates murder mouth and sell wolf tickets. They do a lot of heavy talking. But when it comes down to the point of action, they disappear. George, however, was as good as his word. Whenever he made a statement of some kind, it would be followed by action. If you were the victim of a racial attack inside prison, there was a good chance that he would turn up fighting for you at your side. Most of his so-called offenses inside prison, the reasons why he was forced to spend over seven years in various forms of solitary confinement, including the infamous strip cells in Soledad's O-Wing, the reasons why he was never paroled, involved his defense of other inmates. What made him particularly dangerous to the prison authorities was this enormous talent as an organizer. Quote, We have got to get together. 
we have got to be in a position to tell the pig that if he doesn't serve the food when it's warm and pass out the scouring powder on time, everybody on the tier is going to throw something at him. Then things will change and life will be easier. You don't get that kind of unity when you're fighting with each other. I'm always telling the brothers that some of those whites are willing to work with us against the pigs. All they got to do is stop talking honky. When the races start fighting, all you have is one maniac group against another. That's just what the pigs want. It is not coincidental that the need for unity among revolutionary groups is one of the major themes of this book. Quote, Try to remember how you felt at the most depressing moment of your life. The moment of your deepest dejection. That is how I feel all the time. No matter what level my consciousness may be, asleep, awake, in between, the thing is there and it keeps me moving, pins my eye to the ball, uptight, 24 hours a day. So what we'll do is we'll just continue on from yesterday where we finished up because you had to go. I'm sorry, I really didn't really understand that or know that you had other commitments that would have happily let you go earlier. But thank you for squeezing us in nonetheless. Oh, yeah, I always got time for y'all. You know, I personally just got to get way better about time management, to be honest with y'all. So I'm with you. I'm with you there. Okay, cool. Did you know that blood in my eye or George Jackson are not listed whatsoever as the list of heavyweight theory or Marxist names on Marxist.org? No, uh, I was aware of that. And I find it interesting that like Marxist.org is very much put together by people who are still evolving from a more liberal framework, mm. you know, like Western Marxism is very much um, still tainted with like the stains of like liberal chauvinism and, you know, white settlerism. So like it very much is the case that like, you know, these white theoreticians get like put on a pedestal that like in many ways they deserve to be. Don't get me wrong. You know, nobody's dismissing the co- the contributions of Lenin or Stalin or Engels or nothing like that to like our theoretical history but like Jesus you know you you participate in these spaces and like there's no reverence for Ho Chi Minh in some ca- in a lot of ways there's no reverence for and you know the, some of these people are mentioned on marxist.org but I'm just talking about participating in the day-to-day spaces of whose names are coming up there's no mention of George Jackson there's no love for Huey Newton, a lot of people who learn about these folks end up loving them. And even these same folks who are like neglected to mention their names are doing so because they're ignorant about their contributions, not because there's any malice, you know. So there is definitely a case that like these names don't come up, but I wouldn't call it as much malicious as I would call it like just Western chauvinism about like who's actually contributed to theory, you know, and who hasn't, you know, uh, I quite literally wouldn't even expect your average white socialist to even know the name George Jackson, to be honest with you. So it doesn't surprise me that his name wouldn't be listed, but like, it also doesn't surprise me that every white person I've had that like read George Jackson, quickly becomes a George Jackson stand because how the fuck did you not? (laughs) (laughs) Me, I I confess. (laughs) There you go. That makes two of us come in. (laughs) He's a heavyweight among heavyweights, if you ask me, because like 
if Lenin is breaking down complex ideas into easily understandable language, then Jackson is synthesizing easily understandable language into easily understandable praxis, you know, and that's yes. and that's what he's so good at. I mean, this motherfucker was radicalizing people from within jail cells, you know, getting people to understand that, like, getting locked up is not the worst thing that can happen to a radical. Yes. You know, Thank so. you. Yeah, it's just not, you know, you got work you can still do. And hell, if anything, there may be some merit to some people getting locked up on purpose so that they can go (laughs) to those people and like make sure they have some kind of exposure to radicalism. So like George Jackson gave a blueprint that they don't want motherfuckers having access to because, you know, if you for lack of a better word, it's more about that life than motherfuckers who are already locked up. You know, you give them a radical politic and and an enemy, these, you know, we're already talking about folks who are willing to kill and murder and like yeah. do and rob and shit. And it's like they've done their first acts of rebellion in the words of George Jackson. They've broken a lot of people. There's got communists out there you want to overthrow the state, destroy exactly. bourgeois class structured society and capitalism but you don't want to break a goddamn law while they're doing it exactly so you know point the so-called criminals at the real criminals and let's see what happens you know (laughs) that's what george jackson did because these bourgeois they're they're the real fucking criminals of society everybody else is just responding to the material conditions that like capitalism creates and like you know that just gets extremely grotesque sometimes but it's not like we're doomed to be a species of people who do who harm and who harm each other who do crime if we can get ourselves out from under this capitalistic structure you know there won't even be a conception of a criminal there won't be a such thing as a criminal and george jackson understood that you know so-called criminals the so-called you know our lumping comrades are quite literally no different than us and if anything, I'd agree with his conclusions that those folks oftentimes just have the most revolutionary potential in society, not maybe necessarily from the theoretical standpoint, you know, because that can be give or take. And those pe- people who can understand that are all over the place. But in terms of people who are most likely to be down with putting some real fucking work in, you know, it's not going to be these bourgeois class traders who like come to Marxism, but still have like vestiges of liberalism in them. It's going to be the people who already lost everything in society, you know, due to, you know, having to engage with the bourgeois institutions who are now, you know, ready to wreck some shit up in the name of a revolutionary message. And that's what George Jackson showed us is possible. That's what they killed him for. If George Jackson was in there, liberalizing people he would still be alive yeah you know or he wouldn't have died in the context he died in anyway but he wasn't liberalizing people at all he was radicalizing people and they can't stand that shit locked down in his cell george devoted himself to study his painfully acquired scholarship in the fields of marxian economics and history rivaled that of most college professors but sometimes for days on end reality itself would vanish from his cell quote I would be sitting in a special locked isolation cell, sometimes even with the lock welded shut, and there would be no one to talk to, just the sound of screaming voices. And because there is no human contact, you depend on books. No contact with people. Special lock welded on the door. Nobody around. I'm strictly by myself. The only friend I had was a book. 
Sometimes I'd find myself talking out loud to the author. I'd sort of wake myself up, and I'd hear myself talking to this other person. I guess it was like some kind of wish fulfillment. When I'm asleep at night, I still find myself talking to those guys. Typing laboriously on a plastic typewriter, George published position papers which dealt with prison life and revolutionary politics from a Marxist point of view. He paid a heavy price for his activities. When the prison couldn't break him through solitary confinement, they attempted to have him killed by other inmates. Quote, they were forced to frame me and set me up for the final kill. The word was out among white convicts, get Jackson, it will do you some good. Once he remarked that there had been 20 setups on his life inside prison. It got so that when he left his cell, he was always ready to parry an attack. But nothing could mitigate the pain of confinement, and the years stretched out and a whole decade passed. In the context of his life, what happened next had a grim inevitability. On January 13, 1970, a new exercise yard was opened in the maximum security wing of Soledad Prison. Eight whites and seven blacks were skin-searched and sent out into the yard. Predictably, a fight broke out between the whites and the blacks. Without any warning, a tower guard who had a reputation as a crack shot began to fire. He fired four times and three black inmates were killed. One white prisoner was wounded in the groin by a shot that ricocheted. Black survivors claimed that one of the wounded men bled to death on the concrete floor. Three days later, the Monterey County Grand Jury found that the killings were justifiable homicide. Less than half an hour after this verdict was announced on the prison radio, a white guard, not the guard who had fired the shots, was found beaten to death. All the convicts in the wing where the killing took place were put into isolation. On February 28th, Fleeta Drumgo, John Clichet, and George Jackson were formally charged with the murder. The prison authorities accused George because, in their words, quote, he was the only one who could have done it. With their total power over the inmate population, the power of parole, solitary confinement, the power of life and death, they were certain they could get the kind of testimony they needed when the trial came. Hell yeah, I just want to, I'm going to read this quote out. I've done it on the podcast before, I'm going to do it again, because I've got a feeling people, I'm going to get more new listeners from your social capital. You new listeners, yeah, listen to this right now. This is from Ed Mead's Lumpen autobiography. Ed Mead starts an organisation actually within prison called the George Jackson Brigade because George Jackson, you know, wanted to haunt these capitalists from the grave. So it's the George Jackson Brigade's job to haunt these capitalist parasites from the grave. So what they did, they did numerous bombings across the United States during the 1970s. And what, what they actually done in Seattle, there was a strike where there was a capitalist parasite who would not hire black workers on the construction site. And the, the respectable left, Ed Mead calls them the respectable left. So the respectable left are standing outside protesting, having signs, having the slogans, the chanting, giving out all of the, the leaflets to the hurricane, right? And, and getting nowhere with, and this is the same practice that leftists have today, is they just protest about shit and 17th century gentlemen would protest to one another. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I protest. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's all yous are doing. That's it. That's just like some civil way of saying you disagree. 
protest is in goddamn practice. So what happened was the George Jackson Brigade blew up the means of production on this capitalist pig racist construction site. They blew up the, the machinery for, so that he could not do construction. Now, at the time, the people were taking this capitalist businessman to court to fight over in the fucking bourgeois ruling class courts. Obviously, he was probably going to come out in the capitalist favour anyway. But what did George Jackson Brigade done? Blew his shit up, destroyed the means of production, as fucking Marx told you all them fucking times ago. And nobody's been doing it since. And then what he writes following the reaction to the Seattle's respectable left is the respectable left was disgusted at the bombings that the George Jackson Brigade did. The George Jackson Brigade allowed black men to be hired on that site. The capitalist pig never went to court. The capitalist pig dropped the case. He ceded. He surrendered. We're talking about paper tigers, okay? He, he, he bottled it. He said, fuck that. I'll just let black people work for us. I don't want me shit blown up. The George Jackson Brigade, in the small numbers that they are, had an irrefutable, flawless victory on behalf of the black proletariat in Seattle at that time. And then this is what he writes in his autobiography titled Lumpen. He writes, Unlike the respectable left, we knew that revolution was an act of violence by which one class forcibly overthrows another. Indeed, when the 6th Congress of the Bolshevik Party held its last pre-power Congress in Petrograd, I can't, I'm surprised I can't remember this word for word, honestly, on, on July 26, 1917, out of 175 delegates representing 112 organisations with 160,750 members, 171 filled out a questionnaire about themselves. So 171 of the Bolshevik party filled out a questionnaire about themselves. It turns out that 110 delegates had spent a total, 110 delegates had spent a total of 245 years in prison. 10 delegates had spent a total of 41 years of hard labor. 24 delegates had spent a total of 73 years in penal settlements. 55 delegates had been in exile for a total of 127 years. 150 delegates had been arrested a total of 549 times. He writes, Who in Seattle's legitimate left was willing to risk imprisonment to move the cause of revolution forward? Lenin had been a train robber and Stalin supported the movement by Robin Banks. How could we do any less and still call ourselves revolutionaries? And that's what I'm dealing with. If you're out there and that's your politics, get in touch with us. Come up here. You can live in my house rent-free. We'll do this shit and we're going to be fucking base building in no time. So these are the comrades I look to, the ones who are willing to risk imprisonment to move the revolution forward. I think Ed Mead has probably spent 30-odd years of his life in prison for moving the revolutionary forward, and nobody's heard of this motherfucker. Why? What's wrong with you? And I'll tell you what's wrong, what's wrong with you. You're scared. You're cowards. You're not revolutionary. Stop, stop muddying the water. Stand out the way. 
Mm-hmm. I, just, I just think that's that important because there's a whole strain of radical, practical, revolutionary struggles and fights that have been won by violence. During the 1970s, there was all kinds of organisations blowing shit up, up and down the United States. And nobody's even heard of these organisations. Ed Mead um, writes about in his autobiography how he travels across the United States to meet up with these, learns how to make pipe bombs, learns how to do this, learns how to do that, and then eventually goes out and does it when it's necessary, whilst also being ostracised from the left. That's how I felt sometimes a revolutionary on radio because we're just too down to earth, we're too radical for you consumers, you you know, you content producers. Mm-hmm. Fucking revolutionary this bitch. Have you any thoughts on that whatsoever before we move on? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm just enjoying the righteous fervor, you know, that you that you yes. got on there. You know, the fact is, theory is good, you know, but praxis is just so much better, you know, and there's a real vested interest in keeping people away from society who have the most potential to put shit into action, you know. And the moment we start getting people to realize that they need to stop thinking about people as criminals and, you know, destroyers of communities and all these other nonsense things and start looking at these people as the leader who could be pushing us forward in a real revolutionary direction, a lot of shit's going to change real quick. So uh, we got to change our relationship to how we even think about these people and then start really reassessing who are the actual criminals in the world. Is it the so-called murderer or is it, you know, the, or is it the person who drove them to murder in the first place by like making them poor and putting them in a position where those were the conditions? Cause I know who I'm more angry at, you know, uh, and those folks, they don't deserve to be demonized nowhere near as much as the bourgeoisie. Cause those are the same folks who are gonna do real shit, you know, in the communities. Uh, people just quickly just, just need to be, told and shown, you know, you can't just tell people, you actually got to be able to back the shit up, who the enemies are. And like, to some extent, these folks don't even need much in the way of the political education from the standpoint that they already just fundamentally through the way their lives have already been lived, already understand who the fuck the enemy is. You know, they've gone through the liberal bourgeois injustice system. They've gone through a radicalization that most folks can't relate to. So, why shouldn't these be the people that we are looking to to spur revolutionary action? So when we get there, we're going to be unstoppable as a class. Oh, yeah. Uh, just these people re- do really need to re-educate themselves on what a criminal actually is because, you know, capitalism by its very nature is a prolific breeder of crime. It is a system of legalized robbery of the working class and global south. The whole process of capitalist business is a swindle and an armed hold-up. In a capitalist society, what constitutes as crime and what does not is an arbitrary distinction. The capitalists do not recognise any line of demarcation for themselves. They do whatever the fuck they can get away with. The record of every large fortune and big corporation or billionaire in every country is smeared not only with the brutal robbery of the workers, but also statutory crime of every description, from the brining of legislators to plain murder. Wall Street is full of uncaught kulaks. 
I was just on that. People really need to regret the head around what a criminal is and the lump of proletariat, and also realize that God damn it, I'm sweating. It's been it's been deep. I knew it would be deep. <laughs> As a slave, the social phenomena that engages my whole consciousness is, of course, revolution. The slave and revolution. Born to a premature death, a menial subsistence wage worker, odd job man, the cleaner, the cot, the man under the hatches without bail, that's me, the colonial victim. Anyone who can pass the civil service examination today can kill me tomorrow. Anyone who passed the civil service examination yesterday can kill me today with complete immunity. I've lived with repression every moment of my life. A repression so formidable that any movement on my part can only bring relief. The respite of a small victory or the release of death. In every sense of the term, in every sense that's real, I'm a slave to and of property. Revolution within a modern industrial capitalist society can only mean the overthrow of all existing property relations and the destruction of all institutions that directly or indirectly support existing property relations. It must include the total suppression of all classes and individuals who endorse the present state of property relations or who stand to gain from it. Anything less than that is reform. Government and the infrastructure of the enemy capitalist state must be destroyed to get at the heart of the problem, property relations. Otherwise, there is no revolution. Reshuffle the governmental personnel and forms without changing property relations and economic institutions, and you have produced simply another reform stage in the old bourgeois revolution. The power to alter the present imbalances, to remedy the critical defects of an advanced industrial state ordered on an antiquated set of greed-confused motives, rests with control over production and distribution of wealth. If the 1% who presently control the wealth of the society maintain their control after any reordering of the state, the changes cannot be said to be revolutionary. A quote from John Garassi. The prerequisite for a successful popular revolution is that the victors totally junk the old machinery of state. Lenin stressed in the state and revolution, quote, one thing especially was proven by the Paris Commune, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. And again, Lenin says, quote, the working class must break up, smash the ready-made state machinery, and not confine itself merely to laying hold of it. The reason is simple enough. A popular revolution means a revolution by and for the popular classes. Its ultimate aim is to bring all classes into one, that is, destroy the class state. What we did yesterday, we, we kind of touched upon pan-Africanism and anti-colonialism as a way of decolonizing the imperial core. It's really interesting. Obviously, this seems like mostly um, an American phenomenon online because it seems to be mostly Americans, black Americans, um, who are talking about these. However, the UK has also a massive history of, obviously, settler colonialism. Uh, Ruin actually had some thoughts that he'd like to share with you and our listeners, and then maybe it would be a good talking point as well, just to bring out some of the, the dynamics and the differences between these two phenomena. 
um, that that we do need to tackle and seriously consider as revolutionaries moving forward into the free world. Uh, yeah, for sure. So uh, the point I was going to make is kind of just already been said, if you like. I think uh, when we look at the you know so-called United Kingdom, the first thing on our minds does need to be decolonization, and that needs to start with basically you know not only the destruction of the external elements of British Empire, the Commonwealth, and so on, but also internally the destruction of you know the so-called Britain into its constituent nations and uh, that's something that is very the there is no mainstream discourse on this there is almost no word being said about it outside of the uh, republican movements of each particular country there and interestingly enough as you would expect the working class that is most interested in the destruction of the British Empire and everything that goes with it is the um, colonised population at home. So those of us in the diaspora or those who have directly immigrated from the empire or former empire. Um, And uh, that's something that I believe Shiri talked about earlier when he said, um, you know, who do I talk to about this? I think that's who, that's where the organising needs to start. It needs to start by the colonised people and it needs to um, recognise not only the extern, extern, externalities, if you like, of colonialism and imperialism, but really looking in your own back garden as well. The actual thought of organising under the name of, you know, United Kingdom or United States of America should be as an anathema to a socialist as organising under the name of the Communist Party of the Third Reich. That's truly, I believe, give so much credence to the empire by organising under its uh, pretenses. Hell yeah, those national socialists are fucking no-goes, let me tell you. And again, I just want to say to our listeners and to everybody else, obviously, we have not discussed this on Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. Obviously, we're going more towards Lumpen Theory and the ostracization of the Lumpen. However, it's largely just for a case of I don't know about it. I'm a YT dude. You know what I'm saying? I'm here now hearing these things, asking these questions. I want to engage. I want to learn more. You know, really, how good are you to be, like, transparent and honest about it? Uh, the thing about American colonialism and British colonialism is, you know, they're kind of joint at the hip, if you want to keep it real about the history, you know, the what is America, you know, the British Empire and what's the word I'm looking for, kind of disconnected, that, that, that split, you know, there's not like there was any ideological like differences among like radicals you know in the colonies and then all of a sudden you know they decided to just take an anti-colonial politic and break up you know from the british empire like no that's not what it was about at all they just simply had um disagreements over economic issues like taxes and they had issues about England moving away towards abolishing the slave trade at that time. They didn't want that to happen. So when we talk about um, British colonialism, uh, it's not like America exists in some context where it was trying to get away from that relationship at all. If anything, it was trying to 
um, maintain the institution of colonialism as long as it possibly could in order to be able to uh, continue to carve out, you know, its place in this imperialistic world. You know, when Lenin talks about um, imperialism, he talks about um, carving up uh, the whole world um, between these imperialist powers as one of the, like, key features of understanding what imperialism is and what is going on now, if not that. So, you know, British colonialism, uh, for American colonialism, French colonialism, um, Japanese colonialism, etc. they might all take on different characteristics, so to speak, depending on cultural and material context. But these are still the same damn institution. And colonialism itself is one institution. And these are like some of the powers along with some others who are just participating in quite literally trying to carve the whole world up. So uh, you got to just make sure that it's not a meaningful distinction when it comes to the subject of colonialism, making sure people understand that there's no meaningful distinction between these colonial powers. Now, you could talk about specifics, and I suppose that can be meaningful, but we got to make sure people understand that when we discuss them, we're still talking about the same damn thing, even if we're assessing the different conditions that lead to operating in different ways because in many ways they don't operate differently at all they still occupy countries they still fund genocides they still marginalize their own indigenous and black and brown people uh and that's to say nothing of liberal bourgeois injustice systems that disproportionately target these kinds of folks so colonialism from a british context is america and japanese and French, etc. Colonialism itself is one institution. So that was the that's the point I would uh, make on that, comrades. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just that you know the relationship between the oppressed and the oppressor is still the same, whether the oppressor has you know an American flag or a British flag. I mean, ultimately, that's why I don't really understand the sort of. Well, I mean, I do understand it, but like the lionization of America as like a breakaway colony from Britain, obviously, but. They, they were only operating off their own self-interest. I mean, the, the, the American bourgeoisie just wanted England out of the picture so that they could exploit the proletariat for themselves, right, without, like, another country in the picture, essentially. Exactly. That's a, that's a perfect point, comrade, because what you understand when you, like, really analyze the way the bourgeois acts is that there's factionalism in the bourgeois, just like there's factionalism among our class, you know? Like, this, like, they're not on one coherent page, always operating from the same interest, going in one direction all the goddamn time. Like, no, that would be an idealist telling of what history is. No, the the bourgeois don't always line up with each other. And hell, sometimes, in the cases of some countries' material context, the bourgeois temporarily align with the interests of the most marginalized, you know, in terms of, like, trying to get out from the worst excesses of, of, of colonization, you know. It's not like there's no national bourgeoisie in China, but would the national bourgeoisie in China have the same relationship to colonialism that American bourgeois have? Absolutely not. And they certainly wouldn't have interest in participating in colonizing other people the way these traditional imperialist powers do. So, like, you know, it's okay to mark distinctions, but even understanding that, like, yeah, the bourgeoisie of one country can be at odds with its own bourgeoisie, and sure as hell can be at odds with the national, with the international bourgeoisie about what to do. You know, just the same as 
our class can be divided up. So, I mean, and we see that right now, you know, it's not like you can't witness clashes between different sections of the bourgeoisie all the time. I mean, what is one of these American bourgeois elections, if not a clash between the bourgeoisie, because it's sure as hell not a clash between the working class for the most part. You know, we're just caught in the middle of some shit that we don't have any fucking say in being forced to participate in, you know? So it's a, when you, when you look at it from that perspective, you start to realize like, man, these people are in a lot of ways, way more foolish than our class because they can't even line up <laughs> the questions of how to marginalize people. Like, God damn. You know? That's why if we can ever get our shit together, it's going to be real hard for them to answer because they don't have no cohesiveness for the most part. So. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well said. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely true that like inter like interclass war is thought of much less, right? Like everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but like most people understand that, you know, the class war between, you know, proletariat bourgeoisie, very simple. But like the intra-class war, like warring factions within classes often gets, um, I think it's just thought about less. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about this before an episode, didn't we, Shibby, about like COVID, about like how because of yeah, the... Yeah, that was with troll cult. Yeah, because of the like giant transfer of wealth, like the, the giant monopolies are like buying up conglomerates right like these the people who own these giant multinational chains are bourgeoisie themselves but it's just the bourgeoisie essentially being bought up by you know the the, the even bigger bourgeoisie right and essentially relegating them out exactly. so yeah it's definitely important to realize that you know none of these classes are monoliths it's not like all of them are on the same page all the time it's a dynamic situation exactly Exactly. I mean, just like with our class, you know, I mean, because even though it's true that we're forced to we're conscripted into participating in these bourgeois, these liberal bourgeois elections, it's also the case that like there's a difference of opinion among our own people, among what is to be done in those situations. You know, um, you got what is the question of whether to participate or not participate in bourgeois elections, but a class divide among our people where, you know, we can't agree on these questions. And we sure as hell can't even if we were to agree on these questions, then we can't even agree on who the representatives of the class are. Because if we were to all get on the same page and joining our class and participating in these elections, we sure as hell and be able to get on the same page with with a lot of our class about who the fuck to vote for if we were going to vote for because we're sure as hell not voting for these damn Democrats and sure as hell not voting for these Republicans. And, you know, that would put us, unfortunately, at odds with our class. You know? And it's that's that's just the nature of class struggle. It's not just the class struggling against the opposite class. It's also the class struggling from within you know we're right now conducting struggles over we're basically having an entire line struggle among the class all over the world whether it comes to issues of bourgeois electoralism whether it comes to issues of prioritizing decolonization um defining what imperialism is and naming it uh questions of which countries deserve support which countries deserve scorn all questions that the global working class is what the international working class or whatever you want to call it is participating in discussing like right now trying to figure out you know what it is and now americans being as chauvinistic as they are 
would like to pretend that they're divorced from participating in this discussion. But no, they're not. You know, they're if anyone's, you know, Americans end up uh, facilitating the discussion, at least at least as it gets conducted in the global north, because, you know, it's the fucking imperial core. And there's an understanding that the other imperialist powers kind of move as America does. So we we have splits within our class. But like the idea that the bourgeois are better than us in that way because they don't have splits, it's like. I don't know what bourgeois they're looking at, but they're sure as hell not looking at the same bourgeois that we're yeah. looking at. Because those motherfuckers, their splits are even more ridiculous than ours. You know, a lot of the times, because you, know, it's not like there aren't other issues we have disagreements on among our class. Um, there's last time I checked, there isn't 100 percent solidarity with our trans comrades, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, among our class, you know, our gay comrades, our black comrades, our brown comrades. So all kinds of issues being being solved, but. We acknowledge that those contradictions exist and are there to be struggled against in a way that the bourgeois just fundamentally, they might not even have it in them to exist, to acknowledge that those struggles exist, let alone ever do anything of substance about them other than like extending liberal bourgeois human rights, you know, that don't actually end up applying to anybody in any kind of material way. So that's uh, kind of how how I feel about that. Yeah, I mean, that's what kind of made, like, the Trump era so interesting to me. Because, you know, while the rest of the whole world's conversation was, like, Trump bad, which, duh, obvious, right? Like, it was so much more interesting to me because this is clearly a man who was bourgeois himself, yet hated by the Mm -hmm. contemporary, you know, sort of bourgeois intelligentsia, right? So you could literally see the, Mm -hmm. the... the class divide within their class right there, you know, because they hate him, he hates them conjecturally, but they all they all share the same class interests ultimately. Like Trump and Biden, they ultimately save this they serve the same class interests, no doubt. So you can you can physically see almost the cracks there between those those administrations. Well yeah, Biden's dropping Biden's dropping bombs too. Oh absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you know he's bombing Somalia, he's bombing Syria. You know, it's like and you see like Trump would even say good things about Democrats who agreed with him. So, like, he had no principles. He had no real hate for Democrats. He quite literally just has hate for people who don't like him and, like, like for anybody who does. You know, if I went on Twitter and said even one nice thing about Trump, Trump would probably be like, you know, taking that and seeing like, look, yep. even communists agree with me on, on this issue or that issue, you know, because like the dude is ideologically bankrupt, you know, like he doesn't, he doesn't, I won't say he doesn't have any beliefs, but he's certainly out of alignment with the uh, bourgeois from the standpoint that he wants to do like this more, this more blatant chauvinism, this more blatant imperialism where like it's out in front of the whole world, you know, he kind of has this whole yeah, what are they going to fucking do to stop us mentality? We can do what we want. They can't do shit about it. We can just go mask off, you know, kind of mentality about it, you know? And, like, it's real funny, though, because, like, the bourgeois never really understood what made Trump work in the first place, you know? they uh, In 2016, they were saying stuff like, oh, you know, he won because of racism, he won because of bigotry, et cetera, which, you know, there's definitely a contingent of people who, like, voted for him on that stuff, but he also was speaking to real working-class struggle in a way, 
uh, mainstream politicians typically don't. Opportunistically, of course, because he never had any fucking real plans to do anything about that. But he'd point out like the trade deals. He'd point out like the uh, the 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 export of jobs from America abroad, which you know. That that can lead itself to a discussion about imperialism because a lot of those jobs that got taken from America only existed through through imperialism in the first place. So like those jobs getting lost was just actually the logic of imperialism playing out. But like those jobs, even if that's the case, those jobs still got lost. And like Trump and Sanders were like the only ones talking about that. And like, you know, even though he wasn't giving answers, people weren't hearing any different. <laughs> from any other politician. So like they went part of it is that they went in that direction. He kind of did this like fate, right? Um, this fake right wing populism, which like if there's, if there's no real socialist voices out there, which Bernie Sanders is not a real socialist voice and anybody that's an actual anti-imperialist can pick up on how he's not an anti-imperialist. You start to be like, well, fuck, you know, this Trump dude is like coming along at the right moment, you know, to, to, to like seize on an opportunity because you know he helped sow some of that bigotry that he then opportunistically took advantage of in addition to speaking about some of those real working class struggles and when you can mix in a bunch of bullshit with like grains of truth you get you get people that are exactly like donald trump you know so his win wasn't a surprise and i wasn't even a marxist back then i was still very much a liberal i was a bernie sanders supporter but like even a, a non-dialectical analysis can lead you to the same conclusions about how he won if you're just being honest about it. But, you know, liberals want to believe that we're just, you know, getting away the Trumpers and the boomers away from, like, ending racism forever. So, like, they're never gonna, they're never going to come to any real class analysis on, like, what the problems are because they think Donald Trump is an aberration on a damn near perfect system. So what can you even do about those folks, you know? Very good point, sir, bringing out the contradictions between bourgeois politics. And it is bourgeois politics because it's the bourgeois who get to participate in it. They're fighting for their, collectively, they all have the same goal in mind, but they're fighting for their individual capitalization of everything, including the life force of this goddamn planet. Potentially the only life in the universe, and you want to fucking destroy it for money, the bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Revolutionary change means the seizure of all that is held by the 1% and the transference of these holdings into the hands of the remaining 99%. If the 1% are simply displaced by another 1%, revolutionary change has not taken place. A social revolution after the fact of the modern corporate capitalist state can only mean the breakup of that state in a completely new form of economics and culture. As slaves, we understand that ownership and the mechanics of distribution must be reversed. The problems of the black colony and the brown colony, those of the entire 99% who are being manipulated, can never be redressed as long as the necessary resources for their solution are the personal property of an extraneous minority motivated solely by the need for its own survival. And that extraneous minority will never consider the proper solutions. We have this on record from a voice speaking from inside the Fourth Reich, a lieutenant governor of California orating in public on poverty. Quote, One third of the population will always be ill-housed, ill-clothed, and ill-fed. Many urban problems are really conditions that we cannot change or do not want to incur the disadvantages of changing. End quote. His one-third statement was a calculated understatement. 
To the slave, revolution is an imperative, a love-inspired, conscious act of desperation. It's aggressive. It isn't cool or cautious. It's bold, audacious, violent, an expression of icy, disdainful hatred. It can hardly be any other way without raising a fundamental contradiction. If revolution, and especially revolution in America, is anything less than an effective defense attack weapon and a charger for the people to mount now, it is meaningless to the great majority of the slaves. If revolution is tied to dependence on the inscrutabilities of long-range politics, it cannot be made relevant to the person who expects to die tomorrow. There can be no rigid time controls attached to the process that offers itself as relief, not if those for whom it is principally intended are under attack now. If the proponents of revolution cannot learn to distinguish and translate the theoretical into the practical, if they continue to debate just how to call up and harness the conscious motive forces of revolution, the revolutionary idea will be the loser. It will be rejected. The principal reservoir of revolutionary potential in America lies in wait inside the black colony. Its sheer numerical strength, its desperate historical relation to the violence of the productive system, and the fact of its present status in the creation of wealth force the black stratum at the base of the whole class structure into the forefront of any revolutionary scheme. We always give our Patreon supporters the opportunity to ask questions personally on our podcast as a thank you for their support. So they can do that personally or we'll actually ask on their behalf. This question is from Gigi, who's actually one of our previous guests from Cinephobia and Marxism 1. And they've got an outstandingly awesome question. It's going to be great to wrap this up on and give people some things to seriously consider. So what can you tell us about this? What are your thoughts on Pan-African and Chinese relations? Has China been a helping hand or has it been a colonial force as much as American media describes it? Governments aside, many Chinese businessmen have moved their production centres to Africa. How has that impacted its people, both negatively and positively? Oh, man, how y'all going? You're going to get the most heavy question for last, huh? <laughs> That's good shit. <laughs> so, so... Shit, I don't know. <laughs> Gotta ask you. Yeah, no, that's good shit. I don't mind at all. So, Pan-Africanism and its relationship with China is like a very interesting um, relationship that you could really only mis- assess materially. I can't even imagine trying to answer this kind of question from a liberal framework. They would just say all kinds of nonsense. So, like, one of the things that you learn from reading Kwame Nkrumah's Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism, is that he held that while colonialism is an unfortunate institution that Africa has found herself victim of, it also was the material reality of his day and still is. And that, and he and he said in neocolonialism that it didn't make sense for Africa to withdraw herself from European finance capital. Uh, this was uh, um, something he was sharing in, I believe, chapter two of uh, neocolonialism. And so what we find today is non-European powers um, who can facilitate investment and help with development who are not European um, colonial powers, mostly referring to China and this, in this institution. So from that standpoint, it makes perfect sense 
for Africa to want to facilitate a relationship with China, because while it's definitely the case that like, you know, the logic of capitalism and Chinese capitalists are playing out in Africa in terms of how productive forces are being developed. That's just true. There's no reason to, you know, say otherwise. It's also the case that they don't have the same relationship to European colonialism. So like um, this gets this seems to be a hotly debated question among the uh, among the left, the idea of whether China's relationship with uh, Africa even constitutes imperialism in the first place. And to be, like I said, to be sure, there's certainly a capitalistic uh, framework in terms of how China chooses to engage. But at the same time, this relationship is non-coercive in terms of like them establishing relationships with these countries, um, ruling classes. So like that's the context on which a relationship between China and African nations exists. Now, r- better questions are who's facilitating these discussions, you know, and typically like, you know, it's the CPC, which is like this amalgamation of like, you know, actual principled Marxist. And then there are bourgeois elements um, within the CPC as well. And these are the, these are the folks facilitating these discussions. The national bourgeois China mixed with this with mixed with these Marxists that are inside the party. You know the uh, CPC itself being a very uh, mixed institution of ideologies, but with the Communist Party, you know, at the center of the apparatus. And so, fundamentally speaking, that's just not the same relationship that Africa has had with anybody that it's had a relationship with, and certainly, it's not what the relationship to French colonialism and American colonialism and British colonialism has been. That wasn't ever negotiated at all. Those were coercive relationships um, forced upon Africa by colonizers. So even if you want to talk about Chinese imperialism this and Chinese imperialism that, you're starting from a bad place if you ignore the context into how they came into negotiation in the first place. By the time China uh, gets onto the world stage, these imperialist powers, U.S., France, Japan, uh, Britain, other and others, Germany, had already carved the whole goddamn world up, you know. So China just doesn't exist under that context of colonialism and imperialism in terms of how it conducts its own relations. And you'll have people who, thinking they're making a good point, will say, well, the only reason why China doesn't ex- engage in that relationship is because it was never in a position to have to because that was already the state of the world by the time it emerged. And whether that's true or not is irrelevant to the fact that it's just not what happened, you know? So, cause you could talk about what countries would have did all day had the context been different, but you can only go with what actually materialized and what materialized is China became a world global economic power in a world with an already carved up um, Africa at the hands of white European settlers. And they began to facilitate relationships with the global South under that context, Bolivia, other Latin American countries, African countries. And so it's the question of whether or not it's good for Africa to be working with China is second to the question of, is this relationship even the same contextually as it is to the colonial uh, powers. And that answer is just clearly a resounding no. It's not the same. 
And so then you and from there, you could talk all you want about like different conditions. And there's like a lot to be concerned with. You know, there's um, there's definitely been displaced uh, African mine workers. There's definitely been a moving in of Chinese industry and mostly hiring Chinese workers and all kinds of contradictions that exist that you would expect when you're talking about a capitalistic mode of production being used to uh, to um, advance productive forces. And those are fair things to talk about, but you have to talk about them within their context. And you, and you certainly have to uh, acknowledge the fact that this relation is a relation, you know, agreed to by the bourgeois of these African nations in most cases. And in negotiation with the uh, with the bourgeois uh, and you know elements of the Communist Party that are actually Marxist as well. That's who are making these agreements. So the relationship starting off in a non-coercive way that then allows the logic of capitalism to play out as it does is something to be struggled against by Africans, and that's what and that is something that we are doing. But to say. It's the same colonial relationship, um, which is what a lot of the arguments these people make. It's like, I don't understand that. It's not that there's no imperialism happening at all. Certainly there's imperialism, you know, if you have to, like, rely on somebody else's financial capital in order to facilitate your own development and get investment, obviously there's something of a coercive relationship there. It's it's okay to, like, admit that while still having mostly – friendly positions toward uh, China and how she operates. But what's not useful is taking the moral question of of colonialism, which is very much a moral question as much as it is a material question, and then trying to make it a, well, U.S. bad and France bad and England bad, so China bad as well, you know, because, like, that's just – that's just not how the context has gone. So that's where I'm kind of going to fall down on, the, on that question. And whether or not it's been good for Africans or not, that's something only for Africans to uh, to work out for ourselves as the relationship. Why is it something for Africans to work out ourselves? Why can't we answer that question? Well, because the fact is, if it's about Africa and whether Africans have benefited from this relationship, then only Africans would know. You know, in terms of, I mean, who, who who else can answer the question of what benefits Africans? You know, that would not be the same. That would be like non-workers trying to answer the question of what benefits workers. Like, you know, they, they that wouldn't be the case. So, like, the African Union exists, and there's definitely a push for something like an African um not necessarily world bank, but just an African bank that can facilitate her own investments and her own uh, and uh, development of the productive forces in Africa. So if at that time Africa's or China's giving pushback to Africa for even trying to facilitate her own development and get her and get itself off of having to rely on Chinese capital and Chinese investment to facilitate stuff like Belt and Road and other initiatives, then that will take on a different context. But right now, we're not in a situation where uh, Africa can totally develop itself. And really, as socialists, we don't have any real interest in an isolationist politic where 
a continent and its people are cut off uh, from the rest of the world and engaging. You know, we've seen the disasters of like this enforced uh, um, isolationism, you know, um, that happens with, whether it be Cuba, whether it be the DPRK, etc. So like isolation is like definitely not something that anybody should be for. So like we don't have to be afraid to have a relationship with Africa or, or, or with China, rather. We don't have to be afraid to have a relationship with even um, the European working class who wants to struggle towards socialism or any other working class. But what has to necessarily be a case is Africa has to develop so that it can engage in non-coercive, mutually agreed upon conditions under which it can operate so that it can both facilitate her um, her development, be a facilitator of decolonialism and African um, unity. And someday, if the working classes in all places are willing to struggle, come together, you know, globally, you know, with our whole class, you know, because Pan-Africanism is, not, is about nothing if it's not about unity for Africans and Africa and across the diaspora. And like that necessarily means you're going to be in relationships and in friendship and solidarity with non-African nations. And there are definitely interests out there who don't want that to be the reality. But, you know, I'm just, whether those people like it or not, you know, Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition was the correct line. Uh, uh to getting together with different people of different backgrounds who had revolution in mind was just the way to go. So I I, I would even tell y'all the way the China versus and Africa relationship or conversation gets facilitated almost feels like it's coming from a place of trying to divide up the working class and keep the working class isolated as if nobody wants to be in any kind of solidarity with other uh, with other revolutionary struggles but like as we've seen like that's just not going to be the way going forward you have to build up uh, productive forces and you have to be in relationship with other countries who are interested in building socialism so from that standpoint africa is going in the right direction china is going to be a big part of that going forward you know and i would expect that as working class people even in europe and even across uh, Asia uh, start to like take power in their own places. Those relationships will take on a, a, a different material context and be non-exploitive relationships one day that can actually serve the interest of decolonization. So that was a lot to say, but yeah, that's the that's how I feel about that question. Thank you so much for that answer. It was extremely explicit, coherent, and like I said, it's going to give people a lot to think about. I hope Gigi's happy with that answer. Ryan, have you got any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I was going to say, like, I watched a, an hour-long talk recently with the um, Minister of Public Works from Liberia. He was the Minister of Public Works from, like, December 2014 to 2018. And he gave an hour-long speech on YouTube. Like, I'll drop it in the casual chat here. Okay. And... Um, yeah, basically, it was like a, it was, it was really interesting. Obviously, to like summarize an hour long talk in, 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 you know, a minute or two is, you know, it's incredibly difficult. But basically, he was talking about, you know, the relationship that 
Liberia specifically, but, you know, Africa more generally had with sort of Western powers and then how it changed and the sort of differences between dealing with, you know, those Western powers and China themselves. Uh, and at one point he says something like, you know, in our relationships with the West, it was very simple, like they win, we lose. Right. And he said now in, in dealing with China, it's like, yeah, they win more, but we no longer lose. Right. It's now a case of like we're winning a little bit and they're winning a lot more. But it's no longer a case of like one of us is winning and one of us is losing. It's now a conversation about, you know, just how much are we winning now? Exactly. You know, and a game of winners and losers for everybody involved, unless your only interest is in being completely dominant over somebody, which is just not, that's just it's not yeah. China's relationship to Africa at this point. So uh, not to say it's perfect. But Africa can determine what path Africa wants to go in, you know. And right now, that's in solidarity and in a relationship with China. And as long as the play, as long as, as long as that's the line, that's what we ought to be supporting, you know. Self determination mm. is determination to do whatever it is a country necessarily wants to do. Oh, give me a second, you know. And right now, that's just the uh, that's just going to be the path going forward for. Uh, Africa. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's extremely well said. But that's why I asked why. That's why I asked for those who don't grasp it already. Why is it up for them to decide what they want? Because some people don't grasp that over in the left. They seem to think that these are geniuses and they could run Africa perfectly. Or it's because the only reason any of us are talking about it and disagreeing with each other is because it's in the interest of the ruling class capitalists. You don't like. You know what I'm saying? You haven't got to be a Marxist and and have an opinion on China. Yeah, it's it's not it's not like a must-have. It's not a prerequisite to being a Marxist. It's having an understanding of China in China's ins and outs. Like we said, it's for them. Understand your own country. Understand your own people. You don't even know your neighbours a few doors down, and you've got the cheek to tell somebody in China how they should be doing or what's oppressive to them and what isn't oppressive to them. Feed your people. Go out, serve the people. The cheek of the the cheek of some Marxist though to to even have this kind of bourgeois morality and superiority, and we're talking about the white supremacy to think that the xenophobia and you know these Chinese people, the brown, the the from they're not from the West, therefore they're incapable of of making rational decisions that benefit themselves, and they're all just submissive servants to their rulers and masters when when we actually are. In this country, you know what I'm saying? We're perpetuating our own insecurities onto others in the same way that we, the same way that people bully gays, people bully trans people, people bully this. And that's one prole attacking another prole because that prole is the slave to the capitalist master. So the only way that fucking prole can feel good about himself is to fucking oppress another, another individual. The capitalists tell us to oppress these fucking minorities, to call them fucking N-words, to call them fucking C-words, to call them this and that. I mean, we're talking about like oppression systemic oppression that's in people's minds and it drives me crazy that i've got to talk about fucking china or i see china so many fucking other places just admit it just admit it you're a racist and you don't believe chinese people have got the self-determination or the intelligence if that's even a fucking thing to make the decisions themselves it fucking makes me sick it makes me angry what we're looking at is literally politicians oppression politicians and and we have got to thank the fucking CIA, swear to God. 
That's all I'm gonna fucking say on that. I'm going mad. Oh no, you spitting though. Like we should acknowledge this the, the straight up chauvinism and the xenophobia on the so-called left. The, the way these people talk about the uh, China specifically, because it definitely applies to Asian nations altogether. But the way they talk about China specifically, it's like, do you just straight up believe these people have no sovereignty? That these people are just drones? That mm-hmm. these people have no awareness of what's going on? This is the way these people talk. This yeah. is the language they use. It, it, it gives big, and like, excuse my language, but like, it just gives big, ah, uh, these are just niggers energy. Like, this, this is the way these yeah. people talk. Like, we gotta, we gotta help those niggers, you know, because they can't help themselves. This is the way these motherfuckers talk. And it's just like, yeah. how... How am I supposed to take you seriously? I can't take you seriously. The way you talk makes it sound as if these people would never be able to uh, get themselves into a better situation without American intervention, without the logic of colonialism, and without this bourgeois liberalism that is doing people no fucking good. So, like, not only are you correct, you know, but I'll take it a step further and, and just say that these people know exactly what the fuck they're doing. They hate Chinese people as much as they hate African people, but it's no longer popular to just be able to hate African people. Yeah. So all of that gets projected on the Chinese people. Yes. You've got to have an ideological, political fucking arguments rather than just a racist one nowadays. Exactly. Wow. So if you can just, because all you got to, instead of being able to say nigger or whatever, or a Chinese slur, you could just say stupid shit like, oh, I don't, uh, hate Chinese people. I don't hate. I just hate the CPC, as if the CPC isn't an institution mm. of, of ninety-three million people. Like that makes no fucking sense. Not to say that ninety-three million people is anywhere close to representative of all of China, because you know uh, that's like one point five billion people. But that's still ninety-three million people. You know how much would it make sense if a person said, "Oh, I don't hate American people. I just hate Democrats and Republicans," as if. Democrats and Republicans aren't the majority of American people. Just say what you want to say. Like, stop insulting insulting people's intelligence, you know? Both Huey and Jonathan are understandably calling for the programmed revolution to take into account the fact of racial genocide. Jonathan is calling from his grave, adding another voice to the many thunderous graveyard affirmations which, for us blacks, speeds the revolution to its ultimate issue. In order to develop revolutionary consciousness, we must learn how revolutionary consciousness can be raised to the highest point by stimuli from the vanguard elements. We recognize and appreciate the decades of hard, sometimes dangerous work done in the name of revolution by the older socialist parties. Perhaps we wouldn't exist at all if it were not for their efforts. It is our sincere wish to operate in complete harmony with these older groups. But we must create new impetus and greater intellectual and physical energy if the forces of reaction are not to win another extended reprieve. A joint effort will make the task of overwhelming our common enemy all the simpler. But if our present differences cannot be reconciled by an honest and fearless search for the correct way, then we will be forced to take the foundation of correct ideals and theory into our own hands and build a positive and more practical superstructure applicable to the circumstances surrounding our lives. In his guerrilla warfare, Lenin wrote, quote, 
New forms of struggle unknown to the participants of the given period inevitably arise as the given social situation changes. The coming crisis will introduce new forms of struggle that we are now unable to foresee. In other words, the old guard must not fail to understand that circumstances change in time and space, that there can be nothing dogmatic about revolutionary theory. It is to be born out of each popular struggle. Each popular struggle must be analyzed historically to discover new ideas. In the words of John Gerasi, quote, Building from one to the other, eventually the revolutionary cadre would become equipped with a theory rooted in experience, broadened by historical knowledge, tested by combat, and fortified by reflection. After 10 or 15 generations of laboring on a subsistence level, after 140 years of political agitation and education, we grow impatient. Not that we fail to understand the risks and complexities of anti-establishment warfare, we simply want to live. We question a strategy that seems to have stopped short of providing a tactic for growth and for survival. Terror tactics like lynching will never be allowed to work on us. If terror is going to be the choice of weapons, there must be funerals on both sides. And let the whole enemy power complex be conscious of that. The superstructure of any edifice that is as extensive and as lofty as revolution must be re-examined with each successive layer for faults, for possible improvement of method. We have the foundation of our strategy. We have studied Marx and Lenin for a description and history of the modern industrial state. We've organized our thoughts and trained our bodies for the ordeal of grave digging. Our vanguard elements understand the simple importance of winning consciousness. Of course, education and familiarization with the core issues on a broad basis precede hard revolutionary violence. If people are to understand and relate to revolutionary violence, they must first be educated into an acceptance of the fact that there is no alternative or that the alternative is less inviting than a fight. Our whole question is this. Just what level of consciousness will support the violent revolutionary activity necessary to achieve our ends? And how will we know when this level is reached? Recall, our Mao teaches that when revolution fails, it isn't the fault of the people. It's the fault of the vanguard party. The people will never come to us and say, let's fight. There have never been any spontaneous revolutions. They were all staged, manufactured by people who went to the head of the masses and helped direct them. The liberalist slogan, you can't get ahead of the people, is meaningless. From what other position can one lead? From the rear? Rear guard leadership? A typical Yankee innovation. I think most of these irresponsible excuse slogans are based on dread, a secret wish to avoid the discomfiture of people's war. In all the successful class struggles and colonial wars of liberation, the vanguard elements did get ahead of the people and pull. There is no other way in forward mass movement. Quote Lenin, A vanguard which fears that consciousness will outstrip spontaneity, which fears to put forth a bold plan that would compel general recognition even among those who differ from us, are they not confusing vanguard with rearguard? Now, I'm not implying that the vanguard party act out the people's role. I am not implying a society superior to society. We must never forget that it is the people who change circumstances and that the educator himself needs educating. Going among the people, learning from the people, and serving the people is really stating that we must find out exactly what the people need and organize them around those needs. 
so this 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 idea that these people are the so-called woke left, like they can't pull their heads far enough, uh, far enough out of their ass to be so-called woke. Let alone keep it real about what it is, where it is they're coming from, and they're coming from a place of anti-China, yellow peril, bullshit. And like they're not to be taken seriously, but at the same time, they're to be taken extremely seriously because these people are getting Chinese comrades killed, and 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 that's just the way it is, you know. They, these people don't want to engage in reality at all. And even on the subject of the, of, of the DPRK specifically, like these people, like more bombs were dropped during the Korean War than uh, by the U.S. than it dropped in its entire Pacific campaign, for example. You know, these people were leveled to the tune of about, of well over a million pounds of napalm. You know, hundreds of thousands uh, genocided by Sigmund Rhee. The floodings of uh, the 90s after the collapse of the USSR had people living in the DPRK having to uh, reap their harvest like months ahead of time and often end up malnourished. Uh, and I mean, I did I did a two part presentation on it on YouTube. Like these are like the real material conditions that people living in the DPRK, for example, are trying to get themselves out from under. This is the reality that people still living in the country remember and live with. And this is what they're responding to when they engage in their nuclear testing program, when they threaten uh, the U.S. Like these people who claim they're not xenophobic racist are don't give a fuck about the real reality. All they give a fuck about is consuming CIA propaganda and pretend they're the only ones who have any kind of, uh, any kind of like understanding of what the problems with the DPRK are. And it's not just average liberals either. It's these people with platforms. It's your Kyle Kalinske's. It's your Jink Yugers. It's your Anna Kasparian's. It's your, Liberals with platforms who spread the xenophobic horseshit. How popular has it become to just scapegoat any problem that America has this, uh, today and say, like, what the fuck? That's not American. That's some shit you would find in, in North Korea. Like, these are the shits that come out of people's mouths. And it's just like, what? No, this thing that you're pointing out is as American as apple pie. You know, this thing... It's and it's just become okay to scapegoat Asian people, and like we should just start using explicit language to condemn that shit because that's what it is. And these people are never gonna feel the shame they ought to be feeling unless we tell them, like, yeah, you're being a fucking racist and you're being a fucking pig and you're doing like state propaganda for free, and you need to really go see about getting a job with the CIA since you are, you know, getting unpaid fucking, not getting paid for all this fucking horse shit you're putting out. So that's the real damage they're doing. And until we start calling it what it is, you know, uh, we're going to be out of solidarity with our Asian working class comrades, and we shouldn't be out of solidarity with our Asian working class comrades. They have a rich tradition of struggle and revolutionary fervor, and we would have a lot to learn if we could ever come into solidarity with you. Uh, but we're not going to be able to, as long as we're too fucking cowardly, to just call it what it is. It's xenophobia. It's best, It's definitely anti-Chinese sentiment, and it's sure as hell anti-Korean sentiment, sentiment, and we should just start calling it that until these motherfuckers feel ashamed to even say another fucking word. And that's just how I feel about it.
Yeah, I mean, Operation Mockingbird was complete long ago, right? Like, it used to be the case that the CIA would send officers to stand in newsrooms and basically just watch whatever was happening, right? And you, they don't even have to really do anything. Like, if you think about, like, the, the Milgram experiments, like the electric shock experiments, like, all the authority figure has to do is essentially be there. Right, and the shocks will continue. So I think I think the CIA pretty much understood that when all they had to do was like send off off agents or whatever just to stand in newsrooms, and they just have to be there. And you can basically just guarantee that nothing is going to come out of those newsrooms that's going to be antithetical to whatever they want, you know, simply like that. But they don't even have to do that anymore, right? Because I mean, the culture is so it's 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 a, a giant sponge, right? Like it's it's soaked up so much CIA propaganda now that it's now. It's now authentic. It's now grassroots, essentially, right? Like people believe they're coming to their own opinions on yeah. things when it's literally just like a rehashing of whatever the CIA has wanted you to think for the for years. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and it's funny. And I might just post about it on Twitter again too, because I did it a few months ago. But like the CIA doesn't even actually buy into the propaganda that it puts out. Like you know, the CIA yeah. doesn't even believe. That like Stalin, for example, was a totalitarian right. dictator. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, they don't. You're right. What's the name of that thing? They have like a. They, they have, have a like document. A book. a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They like pass a book down, and they in the book they write like all the truths, right? <laughs> Essentially, so like the internal, even you know the bureaucracy within itself knows what it's lying about and what's telling what, what and what wow. the actual truth is. So it has a book where it keeps like actual facts wow and it, and that's just completely antithetical to everything it spits out right so that's how it knows what it's lying about and what it's telling the truth about not that surprising because these are the hoarders of all of world's knowledge aren't they these are the ones who you have to pay tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of pounds just to get some education when it's sitting in a fucking book on a shelf over there do you know what i'm saying it also makes sense when you think about it. Like, they are the surveillance state, right? Like, if anyone knows the truth, it's them more than anyone. Because they've got literally eyes and ears in every inch of the planet Earth, right? So they actually have a better idea of the truth than I possibly could. If Revolution Lumpen is going to do anything, let's inspire the whistleblowing CIA to fucking bring this book out. I want to see that. Um, hit me up on at Lumpen underscore radio, and I'll confidentially release it. I'll read it out real quick. So here we have from a CIA document. And it says, even in Stalin's time, there was collective leadership. The Western idea of a dictator within the communist setup is exaggerated. Misunderstandings on that subject are caused by lack of comprehension of the real nature and organization of the communist power structure. Stalin, or the, although holding wide powers, was merely the captain of a team. And it seems obvious that Khrushchev will be the new captain. However, it does not appear that any of the present leaders will rise to the stature of, of Lenin and Stalin, so that it will be safer to assume that developments in Moscow will be the, along, the, along the lines of what is called collective leadership, unless Western policies force the Soviets oh. to streamline their power organization. Like This is their take Damn. on who Stalin was and what's going on with the Soviet power structure. So, <laughs> you know. That's all you need to know. That's all you fucking need to know. This is who these people are. They know they're bullshitting. Like, it's not an exaggeration. They know they're bullshitting. Bullshitting is the name of the game, you know? And, I, and I'll post a text that that's from, too. Yeah, but uh, It's straight from CIA. Um, it's, it's straight from CIA.gov. 
Very interesting. Yeah, he is literally on CIA.gov. He's a fucking fiend. Um, We'll also have that in the show notes of this episode for people to go and find it. Research on it. And next time some liberal wants to spew out some bullshit, just give them the CIA link. Also, just consider the fact that that's what's available to us now. The more than likely got one talking about China um, with Z in the exact same way, in the exact same manner, um, just as as fiendishly, I can't even think of a word that denounces them to a decent degree. I mean, yeah, we can wrap up here so we can love you and leave you. It's been a flipping heck of an interview and uh, we really hope that a lot of comrades get a lot out of it and we also hope that people go and support you and all your work going forward having learned just how much of an easy going open honest based comrade which you are um, and we also hope that people see here revolutionary lump and radio what we're about we're standing up for the most oppressed for the for the most deprived the most alienated and the most overlooked for revolutionary potential because we want to put an end to capitalism to end imperialism we have to end racism you know so that we can't justify you know these these poor countries being made poorer i mean it's perpetuated by racism let's put an end to it exactly it's been good to talk with y'all and i wouldn't mind coming on again one of these days all y'all gotta do is let me know y'all can consider me a friend of the show would love to have you back on like I said, a lot of our listeners love you anyway. So let's get some feedback from the listeners. What did you make of the episode? What would you like to see next time? Because uh, we, again, we're here to inform and to educate everybody else, not just have a nice chat. This isn't an um, intellectual exercise we're talking about and trying to educate and agitate you here. So with that being said, have you any final thoughts or notes, questions before we let you go? Oh, no, everything is good to go. I was really happy to do this. I was looking forward to it for a while. Uh, I'm glad we were finally able to hash out the time to make it happen. And I look forward to doing a lot of good work in the future, comrades. Awesome. So until then, where can people find you? Where can they support you? How can they get involved in your educational programs? Uh, Yeah, I'll give you all links to our Bread Theory server where we're doing four readings a week. We're doing McCrumer. We're doing Angela Davis. We're doing Michael Parenti. And we're doing Walter Rotney. I'll give you guys a link to the Bread Theory YouTube page as well so you can follow along with the previous readings that we've uploaded. And uh, hell, I'll even give you guys some DPRK readings. Take care, love and solidarity and to everybody else, workers and lumpen of the world. Unite! Solidarity always, y'all. I love y'all. Y'all take care. Love you too. You too, you too. George Jackson's last book, Blood in My Eye, speaks with the voice of the dead. Not only the dead George Jackson and his brother Jonathan, but the living dead in all of the jails and ghettos of this country. It speaks with the voices of the men who have already given themselves up for dead and who have nothing left to give, except a death for the people. It is very much a book by a man who considered himself doomed. In his last letters, George wrote about the judicial process as the end game. He had foreseen and foretold his assassination at San Quentin a thousand times. Ten years of blocking knife thrusts and the pick handles of sadistic pigs, he said. The fact that the author of this book lived with his death for so many years gives his book a kind of special importance. But it would be a mistake to consider it simply as the work of an individual. George always refused to consider himself an individual. 
Untold thousands, both inside and outside prison, join in its proclamation of total revolutionary war. This book was written literally in Bedlam, with the author locked in solitary for a minimum of 23 and a half hours a day, in the midst of raucous screaming that never stopped, the screams of prisoners being beaten, the screams of men retreating from intolerable pain into madness. It is a book about taking that revolution that George worked and died for inside prison out into society at large. His message to his revolutionary brothers is crystal clear. Settle your quarrels. Come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here. That people are already dying who could be saved. That generations more will die or live poor, butchered half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love in revolution. Pass on the torch. Join us. Give up your life for the people. George Jackson was shot and killed inside San Quentin on August 21st, 1971. The convicts who were with him inside the cell block where he was being confined have asserted that he sacrificed his own life to save them from an official massacre. This would only have been in keeping with the character of his entire life. Socks and sliders everywhere and every day. Full English breakfast at a cafe, not a cafe. No, no, baby, we don't let strangers come out. You should come to my hood, my hood, my hood Me, me and Molly's best fried chicken is in South I'll show you gangsters, don't you go running your mouth My beds are racing, 2 a.m. outside my house Oh yeah, it's loud, but come to my hood, my hood, my hood Oh, you should come to my hood, my hood, my hood, my hood you should come to my head, my head, my head. Yeah, you should come to my head, my head, my head, my head. You should come to my head, my head, my head. Barely anyone in school after 15. We're chasing paper, think blue bars should be green. I won't lie, finding a way out is our dream. But you should come to my hood, my hood, my hood Top floor of beeps as they will show you our world That building turns you to a woman from a girl No time to stop, life flashes past you in a world But you should come to my hood, my hood, my hood
I'm from a hood where niggas make their money then they move The woman in the Caribbean shop is always rude Trying to get a patty just to compliment my food So why you gotta tell my friends to move? No, we gotta booze the food when we see the feds spin it Bare wagwans, I ain't seen you for a minute Coming from the land of wings and chicken fillets Where your friend might not be able to read but he can bill it You can see why that's a problem, any given problem Staring in my face, I'ma ask you what's the problem You can be Bane or you can be Robin But we've had a lot of dark nights living up in Gotham Man, there's babies having babies, man, it's crazy up in my hood Shit's got me praying that I die good Where we rather buy guns before we buy books Where they left us in the dark so we like Kush There's no place like home No place like home Buy me any ticket, I don't wanna go To a town Where there's no one like me round Don't take me 